Language and Power podcast, episode seven, social media and COP26. In this podcast series, we look closely at the language being used in and around COP26. According to the official website, the COP26 summit will bring parties together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Language is crucial to understanding the climate crisis, to formulating solutions and negotiating political and economic pitfalls. It's crucial to communicating science findings and recognising the social, political and economic conditions which have brought us to crisis point. Language is interaction that can accelerate action. But language is also performance and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action or postpone it. And language is what we focus on in this podcast series. Hello, I am Michael Farrelly. I teach English language at the University of Hull and I research and write on issues of discourse, politics, policy and sustainability. I'm joined as always by Tom Bartlett. Hi, Tom. Hi, Michael. Nice to be here again. And we're also delighted to be joined by a special guest today, Johnny Unger. Hi, Johnny. Would you like to say a word or two about yourself? Yes, thank you, Michael. Hi, hi, everyone. My name is Johnny Unger. I am a lecturer at Lancaster University. Um, and my main research area at the moment is language politics and social media. And so um, I've been following this podcast with great interest. And also uh, I've been quite interested in what's been happening on social media in relation to, to COP26. So I'm, I'm really happy to, to be able to talk about that a bit today. Excellent. And you know, right on topic, uh, as if by magic. Um, so what we're going to look at today are some of the social media posts that we see around COP26. And the way we're going to do this is look at some of the critical social voices and then have a look at some of the um, more official uh, social media posts that have come out of COP26. And I think the first thing to say uh, is that in doing this podcast, we found some of these critical social voices really useful. Uh, I don't know what you think, Tom. Yes, it's been really good to sort of catch up on some of the things we've been talking about in terms of what we've been calling the noise around the event, but also the uptake of people's contributions, not just evaluating them in their own right as texts, but the importance of seeing how other people take them up. So social media, I assume, is a great way to do that. Maybe Johnny will be able to tell us a bit more about how reliable mm. it is as a barometer of such things. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's a, a great way to start. So, Johnny, when we're doing discourse analysis, critical discourse analysis, maybe other approaches to language analysis, what do we need to think about when we're looking at social media in particular? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think from one perspective, you can analyze social media texts, just like you analyze any texts, any media texts, any conversations, videos, TV, whatever it might be. But there are some things that are different about social media. And so one of the things that I think it's important to look at, and this is something that um, Majid Kosrabinek has written about um, with me and also on his own and with other people, is uh, social media dynamics. And so that's kind of looking at how the different um, actors involved, so the not just the people who post content on social media, but also mm. the companies that run social media platforms, the governments that regulate social media platforms, um, the people that sort of, uh, use social media posts in other news media. So it all kind of creates quite a complicated, what sometimes we call an ecology of 
discourse and, and texts around uh, social media. So thinking about kind of how it all fits together and especially who benefits. So when somebody posts something on social media, they're essentially doing free labor for a social media company that benefits from other people's attention uh, in reading those posts and, and consuming that content. And that's something that, for example, uh, Christian Fuchs at the University of Westminster has written about quite a, quite a bit. So that, that's kind of at the, the kind of the top level, just thinking about how does it all fit together and being a bit critical about that as well, not just treating social media posts as, as data, but kind of as situated data. So that data that exists within a system of I media. I think that's really interesting, um, that idea of like ecology is obviously a really suitable metaphor to be bringing in for COP, but that idea, we've talked a little bit about looking at a text in context, but this idea that it's a whole ecology where there's all sorts of texts circulating in different ways and interacting with each other in different ways. Navigating that whole that whole system, that whole ecology is, is really fascinating from an analytical point of view, but we, we can't really understand the contribution of these individual texts without consideration of that. So I, I'd be really interested to hear what you've got to say about the ecology of these texts later on. It's, a, it's an amazing area. Yeah, yeah. Are there any um, particular categories uh, that you would use when analysing some uh, social media posts, is there anything particularly different about, about that? I mean, if you talk about intertextuality, which is a very old category for discourse analysis, you've also got this, you've got the technology of hyperlinks here. Mm. Uh, does that do, yeah. does that do anything different for our understanding of intertextuality? Definitely, definitely. So I think that the first thing to say is that when you look at a, um, a social media post, it's often not a static text. So it's something that in some cases can change if on platforms that let you edit posts. Um, and I think news websites are a good example of this, yeah. you know, often news articles will change over time and people might've been commenting on something on a news article that has already been deleted or changed. Mm. So you kind of have to look at them as dynamic texts that change over time. And then of course they also relate to each other in quite complex ways. People might add their own position, their own stance to it, um, and say something about it. Often people will repost things that they're critical of as well. Mm. And the other thing is that it's very easy in um, social media posts to bring other texts into your text via hyperlink. Right. So you can say something like, look at this article, it shows this, that, and the other, and just provide a link to the article. Whereas if you were trying to do that in a conversation, you'd have to actually say something about what's in that other mm. article mm. Uh, that, you, that you're talking about. Mm. So it, it does work a little bit differently because of these uh, what we call affordances, yeah. so the things that the social media platforms let you do, uh, technologically speaking, uh, they provide quite a lot of scope for different kinds of intertextuality. That's really yeah. interesting, yeah. isn't it? Just what you said about affordances and when you, you can bring in this whole other text and if someone follows that, that then links to a whole load of, of other texts. And I was, I was thinking of ask, asking you, you know, in what way social media can be said to be, are these tweets involved in a conversation? But it sounds like they're sort of involved in multiple conversations in different ways, mm. not necessarily one after the other in a sequential way, but in the, the dynamics of this conversation is, is much harder to, and it's different for everybody. It's much harder to follow and it's different for everybody. It, it can be harder to follow, but also often social media platforms will actually help you by, for example, showing how threads fit together. So if you um, use Facebook, I think on the, the web platform more recently, uh, and I think even on some of the mobile clients, 
it'll actually show you which messages are responses to which other messages rather than just being a long right. string of responses. So they're kind of within the affordances, there are also attempts to, to kind of make that, that chaos a little bit less chaotic, but you're absolutely right that, um, so, so people used to think that, um, social media texts were sort of, or digital media texts were kind of between speech yeah. and writing in some way. Um, and one of the things they pointed out was exactly this. So how does turn taking work? How, how does interaction work? Uh, I think we've moved on from that a bit and said, well, there's actually lots of different kinds of speech, some more formal and more planned, some less yep. formal, less planned and the same for writing. Um, but I still think it's, it's sort of worth thinking about how, uh, on social media, something like who speaks when and who replies to yeah. who can, as you say, be, be quite complex and sort of untangling that is sometimes quite time consuming for, for someone who's interested in, in discourse analysis. Yes, just coming just from, I've mentioned before my own field of systemic functional linguists, linguistics, which I specialize in and analyzing language from three points of view, what's being represented, how the interactants work with each other, and then also the, the analysis of how the, the affordances of the platform change things. Of course, in SFL of the old days, it was just basically, is this spoken or written? And, and this is shared with a lot of other old approaches to language. And then, as you say, they've got this half uh, text or internet was seen as a halfway house between these two, but it's actually hugely complicated mm -hmm. in comparison with it, isn't it? It opens up so many different forms of analysis, really interesting, but something that's always got to be brought in mind when we're looking at texts that it's affected by where it appears or the platform, if you like, or what form it appears in really interesting. Yeah. And that's not even taking visual text yeah. into account yet. Yeah. So that adds a whole nother layer of yeah. complexity, but which is also really interesting. And I think also something you have to look at if you're going to take social media Absolutely. seriously as data, because a lot of the communication that people do happens via things like memes and mm. pictures and posts and infographics and uh, all sorts of things. And as you say, things change in meaning, I suppose these memes, they will change meaning over time. So when you go back and look at the older posts, the, what, what that meme meant in the cultural zeitgeist will, will have disappeared and we'll be reinterpreting it in other ways. I suppose. Sorry. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm just getting carried away with your, your field here. <laughs> Let, let's have a look at some of the specific media posts that we, we want to focus on here. So we're just going to start with the, um, what, what we're terming for this um, podcast, the critical social voice. So those voices that are outside the official um, presidency, the, the official organization, the official ministers that are delegates at the uh, COP26. We're going to start off with a tweet by Greta Thunberg because she's an important voice outside the tent, if you like. Um, and we've got one, uh, a tweet here, uh, which is just a, a, from a couple of days ago. So she quotes, um, the total emissions of the richest 10% alone are set to exceed the 1.5 degrees C aligned level in 2030, regardless of what the other 90% do. And the end uh, ends the quote study from the SEI research and IEP EU. So she's quoting there, just been talking about a bit of intertextuality. Uh, she has the, um, the, the Twitter tags of those two organizations included in the text. And then she says, this is one of the many reasons why we need climate justice. And then there's the, the hash COP26. And then there's a link to Oxfam, which is, uh, you know, many people know a, a charity 
and they have put out a report and the title of that report is Carbon Emissions of the Richest 1% Set to be 30 times the 1.5 degrees C limit in 2030. So we've got a link to that. So all sorts of things going on in that short tweet. Um, Johnny, did you want to talk about um, the kinds of persuasive language that Greta Thunberg is using in that short tweet? Yeah. Yeah. So this, I think, is a really good example of a sort of typical um, political or activist tweet where somebody is trying to persuade someone of something and urge someone to action. And I just want to say as well that um, it's important, I think, and, I, and you've been doing this on, on this podcast, to critically analyze the voices of people who we might agree with as well. Yeah. So it's yeah. not a case of just criticizing people we disagree yeah. with. But I think we need to look at how something like persuasion works in um, posts or, or texts by, by people that, that we might agree with too. So looking at uh, the language that, that Greta uses here, one thing that jumps out to me immediately is the use of numbers. So she's got 10%, she's got 1.5C, she's got 90%, and she's got the year 2030. And numbers are uh, something that you quite often see in um, kind of political language that is aiming to be persuasive because they often work as a sort of argumentative shortcut because you sort of say, oh, really big number, really small number, that must mean it's important uh, or, or, you know, significant in some way. Uh, of course, these numbers are quite important based on what, what Greta's saying, but just as an example of persuasive language, I think, I think that jumped out at me. And then the, the second thing is um, looking at the structure of this tweet. So we have a quotation and that's bringing in intertextuality, as we talked about before, then that is backed up by something that sort of legitimates it. So we've got at SEI research and at IEEP dash EU. Uh, and those are both kind of official organizations that are linked to research and sort of politics around climate science. The IEEP is a, a think tank, uh, SEI research is a research institute. So that kind of provides some, some authority to this quote. And then she's got her own view. So she positions herself relative to this, um, this quote that she's, she's just given us and, and has given some authority by saying where it's from. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And just to go back to the, to the intertextuality, just looking a little bit more closely, the opening quote is in quotation marks. And what that does, it, it gives prominence to the words of the people who wrote them. So from this report and, and what she's doing by including the authors of that report, as you say, is, is drawing on the authority of, of organizations that from the outside look as though they ought to be trusted in terms of their knowledge about the situation. And so it, it, all of, all of this, uh, you know, it gives it a prominence, it gives it an authority, it gives it, um, a kind of a preciseness, a precision on top of the numbers that you're talking about, which I think gives it a kind of precision. This isn't wishy-washy in a, in a, in a, you know, in a very broad sense, you've got these things that make it look as if this has been very specific. And it's you know, precision in the numbers, it's precision in the quote, it's precision where it came from. And all of that gives a sense that what she's saying ought to be lit, ought to be um, taken seriously, I think. And I think it's worth saying as well that um, we can flip this around and, as well and say that Greta, using this quote, gives the, the, right. the people that she's quoting authority. Yeah. I mean, she's got 5 million followers on Twitter. I've just checked and SEI research has about 35,000, IEP-EU has less than 10,000. 
And that's after she's retweeted them. So probably they had far fewer before that. So that's again, thinking about the social media dynamics yeah. here. Yeah. So I think what she's doing there as well is she's amplifying these voices mm. uh, as part of her activism and her commitments to trying to address climate change. We'll have to get it to retweet yeah. us in our, our podcast, Michael. But no, no that's fascinating that, that, that recipro reciprocity of power that Greta draws on them and they're what we referred to as cultural capital before and the fact that they can produce these statistics, but then they rely on Greta to get that message out to the public. And it's the whole communication between the public and, and, and scientists as well is caught up in this dynamic as well. There's so much to think about in, in that mm -hmm. short, short brief. Mm -hmm. But I was there, also there thinking, I, I'm not hugely involved in the Twitter sphere, but it strikes me that that format, that even though it's a very small text, that genre, quote my interpretation of that quote in a fairly argumentative stance is a, is a really common way of engaging with actually putting someone else's quote first and then your interpretation and comment which strikes me as there's no other way of conversing where we would where we would start with someone else's words and then give our comments so it, this platform has changed really you know the whole way we argue quite often it's quite an abrupt start, isn't it? I mean, you might have a yeah, bit of preamble yeah. in, a, in a political speech. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure there are examples where they do go straight into a quote, but it is very, very, yeah, the, the short short form gives it a, gives it a kind of abruptness. Yeah. Um, should we have a look at the next one? So this is an interesting one. We've got a, a, a this time from TikTok. So this is one that you, you found, Johnny. Um, mm. Shall I? I will just play it. So there's a Squid Game themed protest happening at COP26. They're just playing hopscotch. Thank you, Squiddle Army in the back. Thank you. Face forward. Yeah, there you go. That's the angle. Boris, not Boris. Who are you really? <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Dr. Malcolm White. Um, I'm from Glasgow. And I'm with the Glasgow Actions team uh, for this action today. So we've got the, the guards with the representation of different oil companies. And then we've got the climate leaders playing games in the foreground, essentially. They're playing games with the climate by not engaging with the process of having really meaningful action. Yeah, really interesting, uh, that one. So uh, referring to the very popular Netflix series of Squid Game, in which people are playing brutal games against each other to and end up killing each other to, in order to survive the games that they're playing. Uh, very, very poignant uh, as the series goes on. And we've got the, the leaders of the, the nations that are present at COP26 being shown to play that game or play hopscotch uh, in, a, in a kind of squid game type of, um, type of way. So all sorts of things going on here. It's not just a text of words. This is a physical uh, performance, um, which has got all, all sorts of meaning with it alongside it as well. But it's the but then you've got a commentary of the person who is all part of the organizer or one of the organizers of the game, uh, telling us specifically what, what do they mean by this. So yeah, plenty to talk about. Um, so I think the first thing I wanted to point out about this is that people often say that social media activism, which sometimes gets slacktivism, gets called slacktivism or clicktivism, other things is kind of not proper activism. And I, again, I want to say it's more complex than that. So what we have here is a physical protest that is going on in Glasgow that is being videoed and shared on TikTok. 
not just by this user, but presumably others as well. Um, this particular video has 24 and a half thousand likes. There might be some videos of this action that have a lot more likes. Um, we'd have to look into that a bit, but the important thing is that without this physical protest happening, there's no TikTok content. There's no social media content, but probably many more people will see this protest through TikTok and through other social media platforms than are present in Glasgow. I didn't see 24 and a half thousand people milling around there. So it, it's quite a, a complex relationship when it comes to activism and social media. And so when we're analyzing a text like this, I think we need to think not just about the language in the text and the visuals of the text, but also kind of what happens with it. How do people see it? Uh, and then we can look at the comments as well. So we can look at how people kind of receive it. And um, a couple of other things to say, again, really interesting things happening with intertextuality here. So we've got very clear references to, to Squid Game, the, the Netflix series, and also the faces of the world leaders as masks on the people um, playing these games. But I'd like to suggest there's also some interdiscursivity going on here. So what we mean there usually is when sort of different ideologies find their way into texts where we, we wouldn't necessarily normally expect them. And Squid Game, for people who've seen it, um, has been called quite a, a sort of an anti-capitalist view of society, uh, quite critical of capitalism. And I think that fits in quite well with the, the goals of the protesters. So we have this kind of, um, this content from Squid Game in terms of how the, the people playing games and the, um, the guards, people who look like the guards in Squid Games with oil company logos on, on their suits. Um, and so we have this kind of, this anti-capitalist TV program, which is being used to, to make a point about climate also from an anti-capitalist perspective. So I think there's some interesting things going on there with, with interdiscussivity. It's interesting. We've talked about metaphor a lot, and it's just what you're saying there, Johnny, strikes me that. So this, the squid game is a metaphor for capitalist relations or modern in, uh, economic relations. And in a way, this isn't being brought back away from the metaphor to put it back in the real world. It's doing the metaphor in reverse and saying, this is what that metaphor meant in real life, kids. Here we are. Well, not kids, because I've been told it's not a kids program. Uh, yeah, no, really mm. interesting. And yeah, I have a couple of things to say about the, the content and the structure as well. Um, so there's a, an interview with one of the organizers of the, or the participants in the protest. And I think what that does is it sort of humanizes the protesters. So he actually takes his mask off during the interview and we see that there's a real person under there. Which is a theme of Squid Games as well. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but, but then he kind of gives his reasons for the protest and, and from his point of view, and he's sort of shown as a, a as an ordinary person, but also someone with social capital, he's, he's doctor, whatever that social, whatever social capital <laughs> that gives you. Um, and so, so we've kind of got, this is definitely so, sort of the story told from the protesters view. Um, but looking at the, the structure of the video, it's also, um, framed by the poster's narrative. So she kind of starts off and mm. introduces it and we're kind of thrown right into the action there. So that the games are already going on and she's there kind of like a sports reporter sort of saying, so this is what's happening here. And that's uh, quite a typical style for, 
for uh, TikTok mm -hmm. videos or, or vlogs. Um, so people kind of commenting on something that's going on and giving their own personal view of it. Yeah, I think that's really, really, really important. Um, so what, what we've seen um, in the two that we've looked at are different ways of holding up some kind of criticism of what is happening at COP26 and more widely in international um, diplomacy and politics about the issue of climate change and saying that what you are doing is not good enough. That's the message in a, in a, in a nutshell. What you're doing is not good, good enough. And that's quite different to the uh, message that we often get from the official um, social media representations from some of these organizations. So the next one that we'll look at is from uh, Alok Sharma. He's a British politician. He is uh, an, a member of parliament. He's part of the current government, but he's also, as part of that, he's the president of this conference. He's the president of the COP26 uh, event. So we, so we're going to now look at one of his tweets. So again, we'll put the, the link up and uh, you can see that in the description of the pod of the, of the episode, but what we've got is Alok Sharma saying good to meet. And then we've got the, um, Twitter handle of Barack Obama today. So good to meet Barack Obama today. We discussed the tough task ahead at, and then tag COP26. And that, those are the only words in the tweet. And what you have underneath that is a, a picture, a photograph of Alok Sharma walking along a corridor very clearly a corridor of power because it's got the, uh, the, the, the carpet and the, um, the barriers and the kind of, uh, assistance or, or, or protectors of whatever they are in the background, but walking along purposefully beside former president of the United States, Barack Obama. And they look like they're in, engaged in, um, in, 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 in animated conversation. You can see the hand gestures and the, and the kind of tilt of the head towards each other that, that they look like they're listening to each other. So that's the tweet. Um, what have we got here? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is, um, it's quite interesting looking at politicians tweets, not because they're interesting in themselves. Usually they're often quite boring, but they tell us something about the politician and the image that they want to project yeah. via their social media accounts. And it's important to say as well, that they're not necessarily the people writing mm -hmm. those tweets or other oh, social cheers. media posts. So a, a lot of politicians have social media teams. Who, who writes stuff for them. Um, and inevitably when they do that, they come across as, as quite inauthentic. And then there are of course, politicians who seem to be doing their own, um, posting and Donald Trump until he was banned from Twitter is quite a good example of that. If most would probably say quite a negative example. Um, so there's kind of some personal branding going on here. And I think it's very important that. Uh, Alok Sharma has chosen to post a picture with Barack Obama. So if you think about Alok Sharma's politics, as Michael, as you said, he's, he's a member of the government. Uh, so he's a conservative. Um, Obama is viewed fairly favorably by most progressives and moderates. Um, certainly not all, especially when it comes to issues around climate change and, and, uh, military issues, but you know, certainly more so than most conservative politicians, I, I would argue. So I think, you know, part of this might be sort of Alex Sharma saying, look, you know, I'm buddies with Barack Obama. I'm not such a bad guy after all, even if you're, uh, you know, uh, someone who has more progressive views, then 
look, I, I have this connection with, with this important person who's on your side. Uh, so I think that might be part of what his kind of overall intention is here, here with this. Um, if you look at the, the image, I think it's quite interesting as well. So to me, it looks like in this picture, uh, Sharma is talking, he's kind of, you can't really see cause he's wearing a mask, but his hands are gesturing as if he's making a, a an important point and Obama is listening. He has his hands in his pockets. And so we, we have kind of a, uh, I'm going to bring in some SFL here. Um, we have a, a verbal process that is being depicted visually here with, um, Sharma as the sayer, the person doing the talking, um, Obama as the recipient and what he is saying is given in a, a slightly indirect way in the text of the tweet. So we discussed the tough task ahead at hashtag COP26. Mm. So we don't know his actual words. We don't know the verbiage, but we do know that he said something and, and generally what he said. Um, so I think that, that sort of creates the sense that he is someone who is doing something. He's saying something to this very, very important person, former president Barack Obama. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's Tom, you look like you want to you want to come oh, in no, here I just, as I, I went yeah, to SFL. Yeah, I rested on my seat, but yeah, no, fascinating. I, I love exactly what you're saying, and I just I think the words there we discussed. This is finite. It's in the past. It's something we achieved. It's something concrete. When I start introducing linguistics, I get students to talk about a T-shirt I saw in Amsterdam, which is called and did, would, could, should, with would, could, and should crossed out. And what does this mean? You know, the person wearing it is a person of action, not a person of speculation. And I think this discussed stuff today, okay, it's still projecting ahead, but saying we've done stuff, ticked off the list. We're actually people of action. But what I'm laughing about, what you're saying about the different uh, uh, cultural capital these guys have got is when by their their handles or whatever on the right-hand side, Alex Sharma's got himself as president of COP26, MP for Reading West, and Barack Obama's got dad, husband, president, citizen so president third but also dad and husband and citizen lots of stuff going on there in itself but i think it's this idea we've talked about in the past of having to build up your capital and working hard to to see more reliable and then at other times you can draw on that capital what we call embodied capital and you can draw on that to give your words more power and obama's now in this sort of secure position where he's done his stuff he's got that capital he can now just i'm just a dad i'm just a citizen and just by being there, he's he's reflecting glory on Sharma, who's still trying to build up this capital so that he's taken more seriously. So people at different stages in their career linking to what you were saying, you know, about this general popularity of Obama, where he doesn't need to to blow his own trumpet. He can just carry that around with him. He doesn't need to announce it. Whereas us lesser mortals have really able to signal how important we are. And it's often the people who are more important and actually take the, the, the less powerful language they don't need to it's just it's embodied they don't need to make that point and uh, i just love seeing those two handles there yeah i think those those are really good points um i i think there's one more thing i wanted to mention about this uh, and that's bringing in irving goffman the, the mm -hmm. sociologist who has really interesting things to say about all kinds of things that are relevant to discourse analysts but what i'd like to talk about particularly is um what he says about performance in politics. And so he distinguishes between front stage and backstage and front stage is the stuff that's sort of out in the open, the main event, the thing that people have bought tickets for or traveled to see or whatever it might be. 
uh, a bit like in the theater, you know, that's what you see when you watch a performance. And then backstage is all the preparation, the stuff that happens in closed rooms and corridors of powers and power and, and things that the public doesn't normally get, don't normally get to see. But what we have here, and this is quite common in social media, is we've got a bit of the backstage kind of being projected onto the front stage via this tweet. So we don't know exactly what they said, but we have an idea based on, on this tweet. And th that discussion happens backstage that is kind of being made prominent here. We, we were talking earlier on about some of the differences between social media and other uh, kinds of, of discourse. And I think that's one of them as well, that these boundaries between um, official and unofficial, public and private, front stage and backstage, they kind of erode a bit in, in many social media contexts. And this is quite a nice example of that as well. So if we think, if we want to think about what Alok Sharma does as a performance, then his tweet is part of his kind of official performance, but he's sort of bringing a bit. And, and as you said, Michael, he's controlling that message very carefully. Mm. Uh, so he's kind of getting the benefit of bringing that bit of the backstage in, but in a way that he has framed in the way that, that he wants to. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Really good. Any, any last comments, Tom? No, it's been really, really fascinating yeah. talk yeah. about this. Really lots good. more we could say. Lots more. Loads, yeah. This is, this is what we find, isn't it? But it is that time, Tom. It's your... It's time for soundbite of the day. It's actually a very long soundbite and it probably doesn't need an awful lot of commentary. Uh, I think it's doing the rounds. It was sent to me by my son today. So shout out for Jamie Thompson. And I'm just going to read it out. It's uh, from Facebook, but it's been re... Shared, shared many times. Let me get the language right. And it's a picture of a man happily drinking a pint of what looks like lager. Man announces he will quit drinking by 2050. A Sydney man has set an ambitious target to phase out his alcohol consumption within the next 29 years as part of an impressive plan to improve his, improve his health. The programme will see Greg Taylor, 73, continue to drink as normal for the seeable future before reducing consumption in 2049 when he returns. 101. He has assured friends it will not affect his drinking plans in the short or medium term. Taylor said it was important not to rush the switch to non-alcoholic beverages. It's not realistic to transition to zero alcohol overnight. This requires a steady, phased approach when nothing changes for at least two decades, he said, adding that he may need to make additional investments in beer consumption in the short term to make sure no night out is worse off. Taylor will also be able to bring forward drinking credits earned from the days he hasn't drunk over the past 40 years, meaning the actual end date for consumption may actually be 2060. To, insist, to assist with the transition, Taylor has bought a second beer fridge, which he describes as the capture and storage method. Okay, excellent. Plenty there, yeah. lots of stuff we talked no, about, with yeah. the carbon justice and all sorts of stuff and phase targets, but I don't think it needs much more comment. No, no. Um, we'll put a link to that as well. I think originally on the shovel from Australia, we'll, we'll put a link to that as well. But yeah, satire. There you go. Go does its job. It's really good. Um, so we've we've uh, perhaps gone a, a little bit over time today, but I think it's very much worth it. Really interesting. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed, Johnny, for uh, for your insights and for joining us today. Thank you both. Uh, that was really great. I've really enjoyed being on the podcast. Well, great fun, yeah. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, really good. Um, and so, hey, just goodbye from me. And um, I'll see you. We'll, we'll be back again tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>